A police lieutenant uncovers more than he bargained for as his investigation of a series of murders, which are all the hallmarks of a deceased Gemini serial killer, leads him to question the patience of a psychiatric ward. Come join us as this week as we did The Exorcist 3 and you might become possessed. of slashers and screamers of course it is a slasher sports production i'm gonna go ahead and get the co-host in here so we can get this thing on the road if he had a dollar for every brain he doesn't have he'd have 75 cents he is the memphis menace rick wow with an intro like that (laughs) well hey man this was your pick ricky what about the exorcist three high level does it for you um, I mean, I just think it's a good, it's a good sequel that a lot of people uh, overlook and don't know about. They just think, oh, Exorcist two, you know, and they don't look at three and who's in it. Uh, and you know, I think it's it's pretty underrated. I think. Following a very shitty sequel, might I add? Oh, it's hard. Four is horrible. Four is four is terrible. They reshot no. four and then it went direct to video. Oh, right. two. Oh, I'm talking about the one after three. Yeah, two's horrible, too. Two's not very good. Well, since we got two talkative co-hosts that haven't been introduced, uh, let me go <laughs> ahead and bring these people in. Uh, some people bring joy wherever they go. He brings joy whenever he goes. He is the godfather of Joel, James. I ain't got but two nickels to rub together, Bill. <laughs> and a penny in my pocket. <laughs> well, That's 11 that's 11 cents you're going to get out of me tonight, Bill. Well, better than the they usual two. One, they, made two. they might as well have made three. <laughs> Extra James. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Now, James, I know possession movies kind of give you the heebie-jeebies, which is why I would have preferred to watch this one with you. It'll keep you safe and sound. Uh, did you, uh, you know, fall into... Scared, what? You know I'm scared. Yeah. I knew you is. would be. You don't you don't deal with possessions. Deal. I know. Been sleeping with my old shoddy all week. Well, did you fall into cardiac arrest at any time during the viewing of this film? No. Well, that's a that's a win, small win right there, James. And you know why, Bill? I because watched this you... back in nineteen seventy two. That's the last <laughs> time I seen it. Ten years before you were born. I remember watching this movie with my grandpa, and I thought to myself. <laughs> What a wonderful world. And I'm not an envious man, but I am envious of people who have not met her. She is final girl Casey. Hi, Billy. Greetings. You know, there's a lot of overlap in our uh, horror genre fandom. But where are Mm. you historically on the supernatural slash possession horror subset? 
Mm, I'm all in. I got no issue with it. I know that you're not a huge supernatural person. I'm down. I love the witchy, the spooky, any and all of it. I'm with it. Witchy woman. <laughs> she got... Yeah. Um, well, you know, at this point of the show, as it was planned, I was to kick it off to something special that we had for our listening audience. And I'll just tell you right now, it turned out wonderfully, but you're not going to hear it. I'm going to tell you why you're not going to hear it. Well, first of all, we had an interview with the screenwriter slash director, idea haver, magic maker of that mind grenade of a film, Coherence, that we covered on the last episode, Jim Burkett. Jim came on. We had the most wonderful conversation. You can almost say it's like that Tenacious D thing, uh, the the greatest song in the world. What, what was it called? I don't remember. Uh, something like the greatest song in the world. But the song that you were hearing wasn't that song. Well, this is about... This is a tribute to the interview that we had that you're never going to hear. Why are you never going to hear it? Because old man Bill doesn't know how to work his fucking software. It's a damn conspiracy. Because a man loved me and all my ideas. He did. And you erased it all. Because you (laughs) didn't want want nobody to hear it. It's a sad day in podcast history. Well, needless to say, it's not going to happen. Now, Jim did say, well, the, the the interview, but Jim did say that there's a possibility that we'll get him on next week to have a more abbreviated version of this interview. But the main idea here, we want to help Jim push his new project, Shatterbelt. There's a Kickstarter out there. You're going to find the link in the bio to this episode. We're going to be pushing it all over Twitter. We're going to push it all over Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever we got to do to get this project off the ground. I love the idea. It's not exactly horror, like Jim said, but it is strange and unusual. And this podcast is a hub for the strange and unusual. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Not at all. But what we got today... What's it called, Bill? Shitterbox? (laughs) No, that's where you're sitting right now, James. Fantasy in the litterbox. So, Shatterbelt is... And the sea swallowed up Atlantis. <laughs> You're a hell of a guy, James. But let, let, let's look forward right now to what we've got on the docket for today. The Exorcist 3. This was Rick's pick, like we said. So we're going to go ahead and get Rick's rundown. All right. Uh, we did The Exorcist 3 this week. And this movie was directed by the original guy that did the original Exorcist, uh, William Peter Blady. It's based on a novel called Legion that he wrote in 73 after the original Exorcist movie. Some of the main people that are in this has got a lot, but I'm just going to run down the really main ones. George C. Scott, man, he's been in, gosh, he's been in a lot of stuff. He's been in uh, Dr. Strangelove. He's been in uh, A Christmas Carol. He put Ebenezer Scrooge. He won an Academy Award for General George Patton in the biopic Patton. Um, He's won a Golden Globe. Um, he's he's been in the Changeling. Really, really been in a lot of stuff that was that has been huge and big. He's a very prolific actor. Ed Flanders. Uh, he was listed as uh, Father Joseph Dyer. Sorry, George C. Scott is Lieutenant William Kinder, Kinderman. Um, Ed Flanders. Uh, he was in Seen Elsewhere, medical drama. Um, really couldn't find a lot of, a lot else that he was in besides that. Uh, Jason Miller is Patient X, and he's also Patient X slash Damien uh, Carriz. He has been in a couple plays. He's won a couple Academy Awards. Uh, he was in the original Exorcist, his father, Damien Carriz, in the original one. 
And then we have uh, Scott Wilson as Dr. Temple. He has more than 50 film credits. Uh, he was in Heat of the Night, Great Gatsby, Dead Man Walking, Pearl Harbor, a lot of different other stuff. He's been in The Walking Dead. We have Brad Dorff, who played the Gemini Killer. Um, he's been in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was uh, the voice of Chucky uh, in Child's Play. And he was in uh, Lord of the Rings as Grima Warmtongue. And then Father Morning is Nicole Williamson. He couldn't really find much he was in. Um, it just says he was an actor, British actor, singer, and a playwright. And that's really pretty much it with the main people in the film. Uh, like I said, it's a lot. But this did gross. Uh, budget was $11 million. Box office was 44 Came out on August 17th, 1990. And uh, it was... You know, it's pretty pretty well received. It was definitely better than the second Exorcist, um, and that is that's my rundown for the Exorcist three. Nickel N I C O L Williamson narrated my favorite version of the audiobook for The Hobbit. And it's the abridged, so whatever. But <laughs> this this is the only place I know him from. I saw the name and it didn't register, and then I thought, oh wait, that's my guy from The Hobbit. But wait anyway, narrates the Cimmerillion. Wait before he wait, wait till he narrates what. I said, wait till he narrates the Cimmerillion. That'll be like 10 hours long. You just made that up. Dude, well, how, no, long's, how long's the uh, unabridged for The Hobbit? I don't know. I'm just saying the Cimmerillion's really crazy names and place names and all this other stuff. Cinderella ain't that long. Cinderella ain't that long. I said Definite. the Cimmerillion, not <laughs> fucking Cinderella. <laughs> Is this damn thing working? Yeah, you're no. probably eating your microphone soon, like you always do. <laughs> he hangs it on the toilet paper dispenser and just spins the hell out of that thing like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dog scratching his butt in a crate, I can tell you that. Well, That's probably what you're hearing. Why is this audio pick up this thing but me, is what I want to know. I don't know, maybe it's the volume. Maybe you're yelling into it like Sam Kennison. <laughs> I'm holding away, away from my face. Hmm. I don't know what to tell yeah. you, James. But I would say The Exorcist, the, the first of the franchise, set the standard for supernatural or possession horror. What say you? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Thank you, Rick. I was trying to think of anything really before that, uh, but nothing really comes to mind. I'm sure there's something, but I can't think of anything. I don't know. Like, possession horror didn't really... Like I, I can't think of anything older that where, where yeah. somebody was possessed, especially so edgy around the the religious forefront, you know. Well, you know, this is... in the six in the sixties, there's a fair amount of possession horror, horror. I think that The Exorcist did it really well, and it was the first notable possession horror because The Exorcist got nominated for an Oscar, multiple Oscars, I think. And that's something that we still don't see out of horror movies very frequently. True. I think true. it put yeah. the name on the map for possession horror. Right, which is what set the standard means. God damn it. Fuck off. Okay, fucking off. But you know, this is a favorite film of uh, serial killer, or I guess was, of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know if that's a good I thing. I saw or... that. Yeah. I saw that when I was looking into like the you know the trivia and the fun facts about the movie. I saw that and I was like, oh fuck, that's gross. Yeah, rest in pieces. But you know, apparently this one wasn't as fun to make as maybe we would hope because we don't want you know as fans that the artists and creators you know would have you know a bad time making a film that we like, right? 
Um, but there are a lot of creative differences between the writer slash director, uh, William Peter Blady and uh, Morgan Creek Entertainment. I mean, Blady wrote the novel uh, on which the film is based, like Rick said, um, as well as the film screenplay. But The Exorcist 3 won a couple of awards, nothing big time, but it got the Saturn Award for Best Writing for uh, Mr. Blady at the uh, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films back in 91. And then recently, I don't know, um, maybe there was some content released for uh, back, back in 2016, but it got the, the Rondo statuette at the uh, Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards um, for Best Commentary. Uh, also, Mr. Blady. Uh, that's uh, according to IMDb. But you know, according to some some of the submissions on IMDb, like again, this is based on Legion, which was published in '83. Morgan Creek decided to call it The Exorcist Three Legion, even though the screenplay and novel featured like no exorcisms whatsoever. And like after uh, you know a, a few steps into uh, the film, I, I guess they thought the title was a little misleading. And so they had to add some additional scenes. So basically the whole last, I don't know, quarter of the movie had to be just completely redone with the uh, the insertion of the new character, Father Morning, which is played by Michael Williamson, uh, and of an, you know the exorcism scene. And that scene cost $4 million. So I don't know, if, you ever, if you've ever gone to the mechanic and you thought you just needed an oil change and you end up getting those wipers and the filter and all that stuff, well, that's the movie equivalent to what happened in this movie. Yeah, and it says, I just read, that they finally found the footage because Morgan Creek Productions said, oh, we lost it, we don't know where it is. And then they found it before he died in in uh, 2017, and it was restored with the footage that was lost. Yeah, and Blady's wife um, had told some fan site, uh, and I quote, my husband tells me that it is Morgan Creek's claim that they've lost all the footage including an alternate opening scene in which Kinderman views the body of Karis in the morgue right after his fall down the steps. What a shame. And like you said, that missing footage was found in, um, I think, 2016 as well. Uh, I don't know if that coincides with that commentary. Maybe it was released, you know, on some special edition or something. I don't know. Um, but the original version, I mean, it was restored shortly before his death uh, in 2017. Which I would love to watch that. I know it says Scream Factory released a director's cut closer to Blatty's version with footage assembled from various sources. I would love to watch that because to me, like if we look at this movie, the budget was $11 million. They spent $4 million just on that final possession scene. And I didn't need it. I you liked the way it? the movie. No, I really didn't. So where does the movie end without that? I don't know yet. That's why I want to watch what they were doing before. So I thought the additional scenes were just added on. They didn't cut anything off. Well, no, I don't think they originally had uh, exorcism, is what I understood. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah they, they definitely didn't have exorcism. Um, That's what I'm saying. Where would they go? I need to know. Hmm. Well, I can tell you the, the Gemini killer from this film was inspired by the real-life killer, you know, the Zodiac killer. Um, right. You know, Blady wanted the film to be titled just Legion, like the novel, but... The producers at Morgan Creek wanted the you know title to be The Exorcist Three for commercial reasons. Um, he tried to c convince them to call it Exorcist 1990, and I guess that's because The Exorcist Two was such a pile of shit. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to me because it was indeed a pile of shit. I've never seen it. Well, it's pretty horrible. Uh, you won't watch it more than once. 
Yeah, he you know didn't even. Uh, William Blady didn't even direct it. Right, right. I, mean, I don't even know who was responsible. I, and I'll say that it, it says Warner Brothers. Produ- Warner Brothers went on to produce Exorcist too. God, not their best work. John yeah. Borman directed it, and um, well, he's his last movies. name is indicative of his director stock. It's B O O R. But how do you say it? Ew, he did Deliverance. Another movie I'm not fond of. Yeah, yeah not my favorite. It. I bet James likes it. I hope he doesn't. Huh. But yeah, I was... Okay, so I know we already went over everyone who's in it. I've already made it very clear in our group chat that I felt very strongly about Brad Dorff's performance in this movie. Brad Dorff did a fucking great job in this movie. He was phenomenal. Like that monologue? Whoa. And how he changes his voice. Does he change his voice or is that dubbed? I would say, well, the part in the singing part, no, obviously, but I would say maybe, yeah, in some parts he does. I would Whoa. think he would change his voice. I don't I'm know. Pretty sure but... that's his singing voice. You think so? I mean, no. he's a voice actor. Yeah, he's done that, voice that, acting. That's clearly a voice. No, 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 no. I'm not. Yeah, I'm just saying, like some of the voice turning stuff that he does, I do believe is him. Not that that was all, like you said. Yeah, very clearly. I, 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 I tried to pick up on his it, accent, and then again, I don't know enough about him to pick out his accent from a lineup, so. It yeah. could very well have been. But, you know, he didn't have very high praise of the movie either. Dorf didn't. Um, what was it he said? He said that there were scenes in this movie that had no business or no, that had no right to be there. He said that as it stands, it's a mediocre film and that the original version was a lot purer and he liked it more. So I think well, the, the jury pretty much, you know, has this one convicted. It's not as good as what could have been. Critics kind of felt the same way. If we look at the Rotten Tomatoes for this movie, we've got a 59% for critics, a 56% for audience, so pretty much neck and neck in the same field. Uh, A good review of this movie still kind of hurts. Um, Watching The Exorcist 3 is a frustrating experience with both cuts of the film, one a victim of studio tampering, the other imperfectly restored, pointing to the better version of themselves that, like Karis, remains hidden within. Um, so that's a positive review of the movie. A negative review says, uh, too much of the movie takes place in dark rooms where people describe horrors that might more profitably have been on the screen. And the plot is a house of cards that constantly collapses. So even the nice review is not necessarily a nice review. Well, I've never built a house of cards that didn't collapse. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, George C. Scott said, that people would only be satisfied if Madonna came out and sing a song at the end. And she didn't, that I saw. Yeah, so. Well, I'm not satisfied at all. <laughs> but you know, much like every other Possession movie, The Exorcist 3 begins at a snail's pace, and there are a lot of snails... <laughs> every other? Yeah, d- tell me a Possession movie that doesn't start off slow as fuck. I'll think about it, but you feel so strongly about I this. do. It, it, there are none of them that start off with, boom, it's time. They all start off so slow. The Conjuring 3 kind of hit the ground running. It took three of them to do that. Well, yeah. But we do have this pretty cool dream sequence that starts this thing off. Whose dream is this? I guess Kinderman's? That's what I figured, yeah. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. The dream sequence with Samuel L. Jackson and Fabio. <laughs> <laughs> Who else was in that dream sequence? Patrick Patrick uh, Ewing. A very young what? Patrick Ewing. Yep. Wait, was he the one doing the tarot reading? Uh. I don't remember what he was doing. I just remember seeing. Yeah, okay. I mean, he played for Georgetown, so like that's kind of a local um, 
a local big celebrity cameo, even though he hadn't made it in the NBA at this point, I don't think. What year was this? This was 1990, so he was on. He was already on the Knicks. Yeah, he was definitely on the Knicks at that time. Yeah. I know. When, when was his rookie year, Rick? Uh, I want to say like 87, 88. So he's still relatively young in the league, though. Yeah. He definitely not hit the elite status yet. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, this man was on the dream work. team. Yep. Mm. Yeah, his rookie year was 85. So, yeah, he was still pretty young. Okay. Okay. So he, but he established. But being yeah. a Georgetown guy, that would have been a big thing for him. Larry King was in this thing, I think. Yeah, where was Larry King? I've, I've... I read that but couldn't find him. Yeah, yeah. that I, I that's the thing as well on my notes. Like I saw the name, I did not see him, and it took me two two views to realize that Samuel ja- Samuel L. Jackson was uh, the blind guy, right? And I mm-hmm. guess yeah. I guess I didn't um, I didn't realize it because it wasn't his voice. Yeah, and, yeah, his voice was dubbed. But that's the kind of dreams I have. You know, like, except I'm more likely to bump into somebody like Sherman Hemsley, Bob Euchre, or the California Raisins. <laughs> I don't know. But early on, we get some teasing with some talk of the Gemini Killer. We talked, which, I'm a which is a reference. cool name. A very cool name, but it's also stolen from the Zodiac Killer. But, you know, of course, the, the Gemini Killer's been dead for 15 years. Do you ever find it funny? How people are just able to, you know, pull the exact number out of their asses when somebody's supposedly been dead for so many years. When they're looking back in time to say, well, the last time a fire happened in this city was in 1912, in that dry November. <laughs> they all, they can always pull the number out of their ass, and I don't get it. There are certain things I can pull that number out of my ass on. Yeah, no, no, somebody walks in here and tells us the the Black Dahlia killer struck again, guys. There's no way in hell, even knowing what that, you know, when that happened, that, that I'd be able to pull that number out of my ass. I'd be like, the Black Dahlia killer? Well, that was forever ago. I can't pull numbers out like that. But 15 years, 18 years, do you automatically know how many years something's been? Sometimes. Rarely. I'm sick of child. There's motherfucking demons and motherfucking kids. <laughs> if only we, we had gotten that line. <laughs> Samuel right. Jackson yeah. Beer. <sighs> we know coming in about Kinderman and Dyer's past. Of course, it's been, you know, if you've seen, you know, The Exorcist, the original, you'd remember. But coming in, it's, <laughs> it's understood that Dyer and Kinderman are forever linked by that event. as would make sense but things again pretty slow until we get to the confession scene and like what seems to be i guess it's meant to be an old lady you don't see anybody but you know, she's confessing to a priest that she yes, cut the throat because, of a yeah because talk about yeah, it Rick. i'm too mad confessing it shows her at the door and it's an old lady wearing like a black wearing like a black a black hat like a black dress and shows her for a second that's the same the same lady it was creepy uh, as hell, see, I might add, dude. I, I didn't put that together. I I took that old lady as just being somebody who's walking into the church. And then the person in the confession booth, confession box. Confession booth. Confessional. confessional. The confessional. The lady. The little old lady in the confessional, I guess, was just another person who was there. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I got it backwards. I mean, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. You, you're probably right. I never put two and two together, and I often don't do that. But, I mean, that scene, man, that's so creepy. She's just there confessing, saying whatever, and then her voice starts to change, and you're like, all hell. <laughs> all hell. That, well, I was to say, all hell is exactly how I felt. 
<laughs> well, she confesses that she cut the throat of a, uh, I think, a prostitute and left her bleeding. Um, yeah. A look of terror on the priest's face follows, followed by a deep mourning by some distraught woman and some blood flowing across the floor, implying that the good father has also been murdered. Confirmed later. Confirmed later. But what did we that get from... That was wild, though. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I guess the fact that it's implied is, uh, you know, it makes it even better. Don't get yeah, too much I too early. So too. I'm glad we didn't get to see it. But one thing that I thought was interesting is, like, I wasn't raised Catholic. There is a certain air of mystery to me about, like, a confessional booth. I think that's really fascinating. And this air of, like, them not being able to see you and not knowing who you are, ideally, leaves yeah. so much for this to be, like, a cool setting for a murder. And and the thing that's crazy true about a confession is that you can literally tell the priest that you murdered someone and he can't tell, he doesn't have to tell anybody. I'm pretty sure he's supposed to tell somebody. I think you're thinking of lawyer client privilege. Confidential. Well, I, mean, I mean, I don't, I mean, maybe you could tell him. I don't know, but I mean, I, I heard you can pretty much tell him anything, but I don't know. I'm going to get you set up with uh, this attorney, Barry Zuckercorn. <laughs> Oh shit! They can't. That's... They can't arrest a husband and a wife for the same crime. But did they explain how the priest died or not? I I can't remember. I don't know if they even imply it in like the you know in those dreams there are a lot of people with their throats cut and like sewn back up or something. I think this guy's just cutting throats left and right. Okay, so I did look up Rick's theory that priests don't have to tell on anybody. Um. The Louisiana Supreme Court ruled in 2014 that a priest may be compelled to testify about what he was told in the confessional, um, leaving the priest at risk of excommunication if he confirms that a confession took place or jail for contempt of court should he refuse to testify. But the court later ruled that a priest has no duty to report confidential information heard during a sacramental confession. That shit is bonkers. It's kind of bonkers, but I guess that's why there's a um, an anonymity situation there that's why you've got the the forward facing priest uh that never really looks over at you and there's a screen between you hmm. maybe i don't know i'm not catholic i think there are a lot of flaws no. with the catholic church name one hmm. okay or don't or don't, or don't. <laughs> <laughs> well later on though i mean we, we get this scene between kinderman and, and father dyer in the hospital and it feels like one of those you know scenes that dwarf was talking about when he said that some you know didn't belong in the movie yeah that hospital interaction went on for a long time yeah the dialogue was actually clever and fun um it, it did feel it to me it genuinely felt like two friends who've known each other for a long time and know how to jab each other because they know what's coming like you can preemptively set up a response yeah you know it was fun. It just didn't move the story very much. But soon after, Kinderman is told that the prints from the sliding door where the priest was murdered don't match the prints from the scene of uh, a prior known about crucified kid, which had been attributed to, uh, was it a copycat of the Gemini killer? Or, I can't remember. It was the who... people on the rowing team at Georgetown. Yeah. And he murdered, he murdered someone, and then they said, oh, well, the prints on the, on the oar of the from the whatever they were growing or whatever aren't the same and then the guy guy's look is like what the hell okay right exactly so we've got now like two different killers on these on these two uh murders but for some reason i i thought that 
Kinderman was trying to pin that on whoever this Gemini killer copycat was because he like nobody's obviously believing that there's a you know the, the Gemini killer is alive because he's been dead for fifteen years, right? Right. Yeah. Well, we get more bonkers dreams from Kinderman. Uh, another fantastic shot of Fabio, more Samuel, more Patrick Ewing. Um, Kinderman dreamt of Father Dyer with a similar neck wound to many of the participants in the dream. And Kinderman mentioned wondering if both he and Dyer were having the same dream. And Dyer replied that he is not dreaming. And this leads to a very unexpected event. I was surprised. I thought he was going to have more of a role in this. But we learn that Father Dyer dies during his hospital visit. He meets his untimely demise. And what do they find in the ho- in the hotel room? In the hospital room of Father Dyer. The, the vials of blood. Of his blood. With absolutely no... No spillage. No, no, no spillage, yeah. <clears throat> like, how gross no. and crazy is that? But admire how accurate it is. I mean, neat. That's what I'm saying. They're very neat killers. The priest didn't get that treatment, you know, in the confessional. His blood's all over the floor. But for some reason, Father Dyer gets his put in these solo cups on the table. But now comes the investigation, you know, and Kinderman's on the case. Uh, The first person he questions is a nurse played by Nancy Fish, who, first of all, has been in a ton of stuff. But where I know her from, I I know her from this, uh, I, I guess it's a high school slasher flick from the late 80s called Cutting Class. And if you haven't seen Cutting Class, I suggest it. It has Brad Pitt, Jill Sholin, and Donovan Leach Jr. Really fun flick. Have any of you seen Cutting Class? Probably not. Uh, no. I have not. Which is, it's surprisingly good. And this was pretty much, I know it was before Thelma and Louise. So Brad Pitt's super young. If he's still passing for a high school student at this point, it's obviously pretty young. But I want to say this came out in like 88. I would check it out if you can find it. But also in this, um, I didn't realize until I stared at his face for about 10 minutes, Scott Wilson, who played Herschel in The Walking Dead, one of the most beloved, beloved characters in the show's history. Rick, have you still not seen any of The Walking Dead? Uh, nope, and I'm glad it's finally going off the air, but then I found out there's like three more freaking spinoffs. Rick is a hater. Just, just what the hell's wrong with you, Rick? Because uh, zombies, zombies aren't supposed to run. They don't run. Says George Romero. Aren't they walking? Isn't that the whole point? The show's got a name. Yeah, it's not The Running Dead. I may see. I haven't like, watched the show. What, 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 what are you confused with, Rick? Because there are no running zombies on The Walking Dead. I don't know. I just, I don't, it doesn't interest me. Rick's just a hater for no fun. I've never reason. seen Game of Thrones either, so I guess I'm a hater too. So I, I guess what happens is, Rick, something gets a little bit too popular, and then Rick <laughs> decides to hate it. Never seen Rick. Lost. Never seen Arrested Development. Never. Rick seen... probably hates Squid Game. I don't. I don't have Netflix, so. Rick is definitely a hater. Are you refusing to watch any of it? Not refusing. No, I mean it just has to pique my interest. Sounds like refusal. Whatever. <laughs> well, Kinderman narrows things down to some theories on the Gemini Killer with clues uh, from the murder scenes as well as some calling cards and habits at those scenes. But this is like so hard to follow for me at this point. Like. It, as Kinderman's walking through the holding cells in, uh, you know, the mental hospital, uh, we catch a figure in his room with a voice talking to, to Kinderman. Is, is that what? I think this is Patient X at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because they kept flipping between Brad Dorf and Patient X, and I kept, I started thinking, like, oh, it's the same guy. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, that's, uh, that's old Charles Lee Ray right there, and I need to go back <laughs> and recover my steps. 
but what do we know so far? A boy was crucified and killed. A priest was killed during a confession. Father Dyer was killed in his hospital room with his blood drained in some solo cups without a drop of it spilled. Kinderman's looking for the killer, and he's now asking members of the church what they know about possessions. Did I miss anything? No, I think you pretty much nailed it. Nailed it. So Dr. Temple well, tells... To the, the, psych, the, the psych ward, but I can't remember that's before or after he talked to the priest at the church. It's all through. Yeah. But Dr. Temple tells the tale. Oh, yeah. And then there's so much bouncing back and forth, I get lost. But Dr. Temple uh, tells the tale of a man at the hospital who's been given electroshock therapy and claims to be the Gemini killer. Kinderman goes to his cell and is visibly disturbed and he wants he wants the tales on this man. You know, some people say the deets. I say the tale. And the more Kinderman speaks to this nurse, Nurse Allerton is her name, the more I think she's holding out on us, you know. But as Kinderman speaks to this patient who claims he's the Gemini killer, he recounts some of the crimes that he's committed in detail. And Kinderman questions the validity of this patient being the Gemini killer, and this is where the patient begins an amazing performance. The patient is played by none other than Brad Dorff. So what do you make of Brad Dorff's performance here? He knocks it out of the fucking park. I mean, it's it's awesome. It's it's amazing how he can change his voices and his mannerisms and all that stuff. I mean, I get that's what he gets paid to do, but it's a pretty awesome job. Like, if there is one vessel to me that carried the functionality of this movie, it's Brad Dorif. Well, it sounds to me like you're shitting on George C. Scott. George C. Scott was nominated for a Razzie for this movie. That's all I'm saying. But didn't we just talk about a movie? I can't remember which one it was that was nominated for a Razzie that was pretty fucking great. What were we talking yeah, about? It was like I'm, two episodes I'm ago. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that. I don't uh, give those awards George much Scott credibility. George C. Scott is fine. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of silly, but George C. Scott, like, he did fine. I'm not saying he was bad in this movie, because he wasn't, but Brad Dorff fucking, fucking killed it. He absolutely did. I think it was he just two different levels for me. Yeah, that's fair. But Dorff has given details that he should not know about Father Dyer, for example. Like, he breaks in the song for, you know, a part of that interaction. Um, you know, not in his own voice, but in the voice of a woman. Uh, and I'm not talking about how, like, Sam Smith sounds like a woman. No, this is a completely different woman. Like, com- completely different person. He's just dubbed over. This probably further pushes Kinderman to investigate more on possessions. And it's quite apparent when we get more of a visual than we've had at this point. Uh, to this point, we've seen nothing. We only know that, you know, death is upon us. But the night nurse is, uh, she's doing her room checks. We search check this room. She unlocks the door, walks in, walks out, locks the door, and walks away. But boom, suddenly approached from behind, really fast paced by this white figure. Super stressful sound effects, really scary visual. And the report is that the nurse was split down the middle and stuffed with, I think he said rosaries? Yeah. Yuck. What do you make of this scene? But I mean, what about that shot? I mean, it's just the camera. That's what scared me. The camera sits there, sits there, sits there for you know, five-something minutes, and you're not expecting that, and then bam, it just, you know. That had to be why they left it as, as that single shot for the for so long. Yeah. I think I it might have cut back to a... I see that coming. No. I saw, I mean, there well, was nothing I expected. It, they, they left the focus there for a minute, and I feel like a lot of times, you know, with a jump scare or something like that, there's a movie that kind of tenses you up leading up to it. I don't feel like there was that. I feel like it was just a long shot, and I was just waiting for them to move to the next scene, and then suddenly... I jumped out of my skin. Yeah, and like the all white was just, I don't know what it mm-hmm. is. It, it, it was a really good shot. It scared me. 
the the, the music stressed me out. But you know, Brad Dorif, do we know if he got any kind of nod or nomination for uh, anything in this performance? Looking at it, looks like a no. Ugh, some people just can't win. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Uh, he did get not. You talked about the Saturn Awards. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Nominated. Okay, well, I'll take a nomination because he did great. But from I what he's yeah, that's a good question. Probably some piece of shit. When was this? 1991. I'm looking it up. Probably fucking Tom. Probably from Days of Thunder or something stupid like that. 1990. So would this have been the same year as? Don't you be talking about Days of Thunder, Bill? I'm sorry. <laughs> this been in the same year as Silence of the Lambs. 91 was the year when uh, Metallica lost a fucking Grammy to Jethro Tull. First oh, of man. all, I will argue and... this. Jethro Tull was badass. However, yeah, but the... the album that Jethro Tull won with was not a good one. Okay, so the winner of the 1990 Best Supporting Actor Saturn Award was um, Biff Tannen, Thomas F. Wilson for Back to the Future Part 3. So another third sequel, Part 3? Yeah, I also am not, like, pleased with this, but... Oh, okay. Man, he's well, the same dude in, uh... A lot of sequels uh, nominated this year. Day. Wow. Well, from what he's telling us, everything that he knows, all the details of the crimes that he's committed, and, like, having never left the cell, it's hard to conclude anything but this, you know, possessive demon is leaving its host at certain times of the day or night, killing these people, and then returning to him to continue possessing them, right? Because... You know, Dorf was asked who was getting him out of the cell to do these things, and his his response was old friends. Which makes sense. That's what possesses me to do crimes. <laughs> <laughs> the living old friends. But I did find it funny, like the little nod to Chucky in the dialogue here. <laughs> Kinderman, Kinderman asks him, uh, Damien? Dorf responds, no! Little Jack Horner. Child's play, Lieutenant. I did Lieutenant. also love that. And so then business... they go to that kid in the wheelchair, and his last name's Horner on the list, and you're like, oh shit. See? Rick picks up on these things that I never <laughs> even noticed. But business is picking up as Kinderman's strolling through the hospital, which, like, one of his previous interview subjects is seen walking across the ceiling, and there's yet another dead body, who, <laughs> I hate to say it, was pretty caked up. But Kinderman gets a bad feeling that his family's in danger, so he calls home. Um... But we know something's wrong. Kinderman's wife is clearly having a conversation on the phone about a nurse coming over with a package. But on but on Kinderman's side, all we hear is a busy signal. So the fucking demon is possessing AT&T and making fraudulent calls, probably asking about your car's extended warranty service. But now they're <laughs> in a race to get home to his family. Like, very good suspenseful build here. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for confirming. Sure. Anytime. When Kinderman arrives home, the nurse is there. He has no knowledge of her, and the nurse is see, like speaking nonsense until the until she absolutely comes unglued. Uh, she's got giant scissors trying to take somebody's head off. She throws Kinderman against the wall. Like things are going fucking great, but you know things could have been worse. You know, the the, the demon loses power uh, when uh, the priest. I think this is. Uh, Father, uh, who did I say? Father Morning. When he comes in like fucking John Chisholm in the fucking Magnificent Seven with his Bible in hand to take on the demon possessing, uh, I think it was possessing Patient X, right? Although the priest yes. is, you know, pretty quickly dispatched in pretty gruesome fashion, um, 
I can only really compare the way the priest goes out with having the world's stickiest band-aid ripped off a healed and dried wound. <laughs> Pretty bad. It was so gross. It was. I could feel my back peeling off of me as I was watching it. Like, it was immediately watching it, just like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, Kinderman confronts Patient X, possessed by a demon in, like, very powerful form, attempts to shoot the patient, but he's thrown against the wall, held in place, immobile. What do you make of this final standoff? I thought Is this the end of the movie? the movie? Yeah, the ending of the movie. I thought it was pretty wild, Bill. Is that where you got scared, James? That's where I got scared, Bill. You were only scared during that part? I couldn't watch it no more. Poor old James. Let me tell you something. Poor old James. There's certain things. Listen, me and James are in the street. James over there buying a hot dog or something. And a couple of guys come and just start putting their finger in my chest and wanting to take my wallet and my Captain D's coupons. Old James will turn around. He'll throw that hot dog down. He'll come over and wring somebody's neck. He'll do that for a pretty large man. But But. when it comes to them supernaturals, James ain't having. I'm on my own. That's right, Bill. I'm out of there. <laughs> so one one thing I didn't get was the the nurse the scene where um, Georgie Scott hits Brad Dorf or punches him, slaps him, whatever in the in the cell, and then the nurse is wrapping him up with the thing on his hand. Is the nurse is she possessed at all, or is she just a bitch throughout the movie? Oh, I just thought she was a bitch. <laughs> I think she's just a bitch. Okay, I'm pretty <laughs> sure she was a bitch in Cutting Class. Also, she's creepy. Talk about the same looking, one, right? For sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah um, she's definitely she's very creepy, creepy looking, but I think yeah. she's just kind of an asshole. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> in real life she's a sweet lady, but she sure gets some bitchy roles. But final resolution is met when the priest, um, doc, uh, doctor, <laughs> uh, Father Morning, um, having seemingly gone to meet God, uh, he raises the cross to combat the damn devil, giving uh, Kinderman just enough time to shoot Patient X in the chest before finishing the job with a slug to the dome. I expected Kinderman to die here. I almost yeah. think it would have been good to, to I guess, kill that character. Seems like going out on your sword is, you know, a good ending for such a movie, but he lives... It made sense for him to die there. Yeah. Maybe he did in the original. Mm. Well, what are your final thoughts on The Exorcist 3? I guess, Rick, since this is your film, kick it to you. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a good sequel. Um... You know, it has its issues in places, but it's overlooked. Um, and I think it's definitely miles better than the piece of shit that is the second one. Oh, it's, yeah, definitely miles and miles and miles ahead of the second one. Um, I'm pretty sure there's some exorcist loyalists who pretend the second one doesn't exist, much like Halloween yeah, loyalists. Will, yeah, uh, yeah, Crystal Skull is, <laughs> oh boy. Halloween season of the witch. You have people that are split on that one, you know. But uh, and I love that movie. I can't wait till we do that. But do you love it as a Halloween movie, or you love it as a standalone? I love it as a standalone. As a Halloween movie, it sucks. So if we sat down, if we said, you know what, guys, come over, we're gonna do a Halloween marathon. I would leave that one out. We skip part three, don't we? We yes, do. because it's yeah. And we watch H two O twice. <laughs> and then we skip Resurrection. And then we Resurrection? have to look for rhymes and do karate chops. Yeah, is uh, the Resurrection is the one with Buster, right? Yeah. It had <laughs> such potential because it had Busta, it had Tyra. Tragic. So tragic. Casey, final thoughts from the final girl? I'd like to start an argument. Oh, well, by all means. <sighs> one Memphis Menace told us specifically during the Co- Coherence episode I know where this that is we did not have to watch 
The Exorcist Part 1 to go into this movie. And while I didn't necessarily have to, I certainly should have. Billy, do you agree? (sighs) What I'm going to have to do here is for the sake of not piling up on a friend. And I'm not saying which friend. I'm not saying which friend. Uh, I could be piling up on you, Casey. I don't know. Pile up on me. I don't give a fuck. Because we we don't know. But Rick... Ah, how the tables have turned. How the turntables. Rick, you better be damn glad we've all seen that first Exorcist. Damn glad. What say you in your defense? All I'm saying is it's not required. Like, you have to say, oh shit, I need to watch part one, because I'm not going to understand anything in part three. Well, yeah, no one held a gun to my head, but I'm glad I've seen it. Well, that's usually how sequels go. You have to watch them. One, two, three. Now, James, didn't you just throw a shit fit about <laughs> Evil Dead? <laughs> Go back to that argument. That movie was named wrong. It was. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I, I really don't either, James. I really don't either. But Rick, don't you ever say something like that again. You don't have to see Rocky 4 to know what's going on in Rocky 5. Five minutes in, why is Rocky all concussed? Well, in part four... <laughs> Rick. Well, they do show you in a flashback why why Rocky... get a flashback in The Exorcist 3. Well, that's why Rocky 5 is better than Exorcist 3. That is not why it's better. I don't know. (laughs) There are a thousand reasons why. One of the reasons is because when Tommy Gunn knocks down Pauly and Rocky turns around, he says, you knocked him down. You know, why don't you try knocking me down now, huh? Oh, shit. You talk about goosebumps. God damn, I'm going to shadow box here in a minute. But that's not what this show is about, guys. All right, so quit messing around. Get back on track. James, what are your final thoughts on The Exorcist 3? I don't know, Bill. You know, these movies make me uneasy. Yeah. I'd much rather watch Rocky 3 than The Exorcist 3. I don't know, man. I don't think I can live through Mickey dying again. Spoiler alert. So sad. (sighs) Rick, I think you did a good job by giving us a movie from the, the front runner of possession movies every possession movie today draws influence from the exorcist maybe not two or three um but we're talking about a direct sequel of the first and biggest possession movie in history and i think it needed to be touched on because we have not done a supernatural slash religion slash possession movie on this podcast until today so i say good job appreciate for the next oh yeah go to hell rick so for the next <laughs> for the next episode of Slashers and Screamers, we've got to get our next film to the listeners. JB, this is on you. So what you gonna do? Well, you know it's my turn, Bill. What you gonna do, brother? When James Brown picks the movie on you. Gotta find out. Dun, 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 dun. We'll be watching Indiana Jones and the Temple <laughs> of Doom. okay i lied oh thank god there we go (laughs) i was holding my breath i was like is he really doing this to us and the was pretty scary and the same uh rabbit hole is rick's supernatural father time movies we'll be watching rawhead ricks i'll be damned Movies that haunted me a lifetime, Bill. I still can't go outside and pee at night because of this movie. 
Let's get back. Let's get back to what Slashers and Screamers is all about, Bill. Creature features. And we're gonna do it. Campy, campy horror. You heard it there from the Godfather of Droll, Rawhead Rex. Right, do we know where we can find this film? That is what I am checking in this very moment. Give me just a second. All right, well, we're all meeting at James's house. <laughs> Everyone, listeners, come on over. Rawhead Rex of 1987 is not free anywhere. It says on Amazon it is. Because Clive Barker don't work for free, Bill. It's on Prime for Amazon, but it requires an additional subscription. So uh, for regular, you have to rent it for two ninety nine. So good luck, everybody. Well, I'm down with it. We'll find I'm, it. Yeah, Rawhead Rex. Stream that I'm son talking. of a bitch for all I care. We're all pirates okay. around here. <laughs> okay, okay. Rick's it's on. Uh, if anybody has the horror streaming service Shutter, which is owned by AMC, it is on the Shutter app. Well, look at that. Shutter, give us a promo code or something. Um, there's a promo code you can do called Shutin, S-H-U-T-I-N, and it gives you 30 days free. You heard it. Hey, we're going to put that in the uh, in the bio. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, I was oh, Rick say, coming in there swinging yeah. that thing. But I can't remember okay. the other ones, but I used Shutin before, and it gave you 30 days free. Oh, Rick's got to carry his scrotum in a wheelbarrow. Okay. Good job. Hey, well, listen. Well, there you have it. And not making a plug for Shutter, but it's four ninety nine a month. It's all horror, so it's Listen, pretty pretty awesome. Rick, you shill out for anything you want to. If they're, <laughs> they're going to give us a sponsorship, then by God, I say I'll be like Matthew Lesko. I'll wear a suit with all question marks on it, like a fucking Riddler. I don't care. <laughs> I wish you would. I can't wait to hear what you think about it, James. And that goes for the rest of you. So for the Memphis Menace, Rick. The Godfather of Droll James, Final Girl Casey, I am Billy Graves. This was the Slashers and Screamers podcast, and we will catch you in the gag room.